0: Well, after a few-week detour, we are finally back in the Gospel of Mark. So why don't you just grab your Bible straight away and open it up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. It's always uh, gripping and exciting to see Jesus in action. And the passage we have today is no exception as we come to witness two of the most memorable miracles Jesus ever performed. I think even unbelievers are captivated by the life of Jesus because it's kind of like watching a tornado in reverse. When Jesus moves through an area, he leaves behind him a distinct path, not of destruction, but of restoration. Everywhere he goes, following him are lives that are put back together. Things are made right in his wake. And just this past week, dozens of tornadoes ripped through the south. Happens every year. We we know to expect it. We're familiar with the images of the destruction. You have this perfectly good town, and and all of a sudden, a mile-long strip is missing from the whole town, and it's just destroyed and devastation and scattered debris. and It's just helpless. But can you imagine, what if there was a tornado that worked in reverse? Now think of all that destruction, that mile-wide path of destruction. Another tor- tornado comes, and it follows the same path. And as it goes through, instead of destroying, it puts all that debris back together and makes it all perfect. As it passes through, trees are amended and replanted, Telephone poles are put upright, their cables reattached. Mangled cars are untwisted, they look brand new. Shattered glass is perfectly reassembled without a scratch. And and wood and drywall and brick swirls around and manages to land as perfectly formed houses. Even those who lost their lives in the tornado are are brought back to life. The answer is no. No, we can't imagine that. You can't picture that. That, That's just silly. There's no such thing as a tornado that works in reverse. It's it's impossible. That's what makes watching Jesus so so marvelous. He's like a tornado that works in reverse. Wherever he goes, he restores instead of destroys. And he does the impossible. And you know, until Jesus came along, no, we, we couldn't imagine someone's limb just being instantly regrown. We couldn't imagine blindness being undone. Leprosy being cured, deafness being banished, even the dead being raised. We say that that's impossible, that that can't happen. It's not supposed to happen. But he came and, and he did it. Time and time again, he demonstrated the power of God, the power of the Creator. And so it begs the question, what does that really say about who Jesus is? That's the question we asked in Mark chapter 4 after the stilling of the storm. Who has such power over nature? That's the question we asked at the beginning of Mark chapter 5 with the casting out of the, the thousands of demons from the garrisoned man. Who has such power over Satan and demons? And that's the question we're going to be asking this week and next as we witness Jesus heal an incurable disease and even raise a girl from the dead. Who has such power over disease and who has such power even over death? And the answer is God. God alone has that power. And that's one of the main reasons these four Gospels are written, that you may know that Jesus, he's the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. He's God in the flesh, and he's the answer to your every problem. The threat of of nature, the threat of Satan and demons, the threat of disease, the threat of death, all of which, by the way, are consequences of sin. Jesus answers them all. He defeats them all. He can rescue you from them all. That's why we call him the Savior. Only we ask, can, can he really do it? Can he really save? Is he really who he says he is, the, the Son of God? The answer is a yes, and, and read for yourself. Read for yourself. Again, that's why these things are written. That by, that by reading you may see Jesus for who he really is, and, and then by believing you may have life in his name. And like those in our passage today who reach out to Jesus in faith, you too can, can reach to him and be saved and be delivered. In the passage we have before us, we witness his power to save, his ability to save, his willingness to save, And so the real question is not about Jesus. It's about you. Can he save? Can he really save? Yeah, it's an obvious yes when you you just read. Yes, he can save. The the question then really becomes, well, are you going to believe? Will you believe? Will you reach out to him in, in faith? Will you go to him and be saved? That's the real question. It's for you. And it's inescapable, especially after what we see this morning with this pair of, of miracles. There's more to say about this, but first I want to get us into our, our passage. You now, where are we again? We've, we've taken a three-week detour studying a, a three-week series on what the Bible says about demons after seeing this amazing story from Mark chapter 5 with the Gerasene demoniac, this demon-possessed man. But now we're, we're back in the text. We're moving forward. So where exactly are we? Well, we're still in Galilee. On the day before, Jesus had a very busy day in Capernaum. His family visited. He rebuked the Pharisees. He taught in parables. And then come evening, he said, well, let's let's head over to the eastern side of the lake. So he hopped in the boat with his disciples, and they head over. It turned out to be quite an eventful journey, though, because in the middle of night, this massive windstorm slammed on the lake. It threatened their lives. They thought they were going to die. Jesus was sleeping, so they wake him up. And he, in an instant, just rebukes the wind and the sea. And it becomes perfectly calm, just instantly. And the disciples go from fearing the storm outside the boat to fearing this this person inside the boat. Who is this? And they say in verse 41, who, who can do this? And a new level of fear gripped them because they'd, they'd never really seen Jesus do something like that before. They'd seen him heal, but this vast comprehensive power over nature... That was new, and it scared them. And they make it to the eastern side of the lake early in the morning. And I'm sure the disciples jump off the boat. They're kissing the ground. They're happy to be on dry land, just hoping for no more water. And there's no rest, though, because immediately they're confronted by this, this raving maniac, this madman. Only as the story turns out, he's not just a maniac. He's a demoniac. He's literally possessed by, we find, thousands of demons. And he's driven to utter madness and violence. And no one could tame or subdue this wild beast of a man. And he just terrorizes everybody. But just as Jesus calmed the raging sea, so just with a word, he calms this raving madman. He casts out the demons into a herd of swine, which then plunge to their death in the sea. But the man is rescued. He's delivered. He, he's re- restored to his right mind. When the townspeople hear about this, you think they would come and celebrate and rejoice. This man has been restored, and you think they would seek Jesus, the one who has this power. He can heal and deliver them. But tragically, they just they want him to leave. They just say, just just leave. Go away. We don't want you here on the on the eastern shore. And one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture, Jesus says, "Okay." He complies. He gets in the boat, and, and and they leave. And there's no record of him ever returning there again. They turned away, the only one who could really bring them life. Anyway, like I said, it's been a busy couple of days for Jesus. There's a lot jam-packed into these chapters. It all represents just a couple of days. Now they're heading back to the western shore that same afternoon, presumably. And I'm sure the disciples are praying for clear weather, and this is where we pick things back up in Mark chapter 5. There is no storm this time. They make it safely to the western shore. When they land, though, once again, they're greeted. Not by a maniac, but by the crowds. And there's still no time for rest. Look at chapter 5, just verse 21 to, to start. Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore in almost all likelihood Jesus and the disciples have landed back in Capernaum that's a city on the northwestern shore of Galilee it's his like new home base for his ministry and the day before this that's where he was teaching in parables and the crowd had swarmed him and if you remember we're talking like 10,000 plus people it's a lot of people and a crowd this large was dangerous that the threat of being crushed or trampled, was, it was a real threat. Especially if they're all going after you. Can you imagine You know, 10,000 people clamoring to, to touch you, to come close to you, to talk to you? And that's why the day before, he taught the people offshore in a little boat where they couldn't quite uh, strangle him and suffocate him. So now it's the next day, and he's come back, and the crowd is still there. They didn't go anywhere. He left them the night, the day before, He left the crowds behind on that western shore, and now he went and came back a very quick trip. And he comes back, and the crowd, they're still there. They haven't gone home. They haven't dispersed. In fact, Luke explicitly tells us they were just waiting for him to come back. They're like, well, we're we're just going to stick around until he comes back. They figured he's got to come back to Capernaum. And this just shows you how captivated these people were by Jesus. They weren't willing to wait at his last known location for as long as it took until he come, came back. Just they're so desperate to see him, to see maybe a miracle. Also shows you just how desperate these people were, desperate to be touched by his, his power. Wherever he went, that just hordes of diseased and sick people gathered around, you know, desperately clamoring for him to for his touch to be healed by him, to be rescued by him. And as the rest of this chapter progresses, we come to meet two very desperate people, desperate to be touched by Jesus or to have him touch them and be healed. And these are two people who I'm sure were very happy to learn that Jesus came home early. He was once again back on the western shore unexpectedly so soon. And then the rest of the chapter of Mark 5, there are two stories in one. And Mark, he sandwiches them together. It's one inside the other. It's like the ancient version of of split screen TV. You see like side by side or one right inside the other. And we're going to cover both of these stories, but I I didn't want to shortchange either one as I got into it. So that's why we're going to look at one of these stories this week and the other one. Next week, give them a, our full attention. That being said, you you really can't truly understand one without the other. So at, at the very very least, you know they're meant to go together. So at the very least, even though it's it's a long passage, I want us just to start now this morning by let's just read through the whole passage. We're only going to look at one of these stories, but we want to see them sandwiched together to get the the impact. So. Let's just follow along now. I'm going to read Mark 5, starting in verse 22 through the the end of the chapter. So just do your best to follow along and see what's going on here. And then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Mark 5, starting in verse 22. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse after hearing about Jesus. She came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? his disciples said to him, you you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said of the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? This child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And Immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Now both of these stories are remarkable, but I think one of them clearly takes the cake. I mean, is that is that right? Did we did we really just read about a resurrection? He really just raised this girl from the dead? Well, you're gonna have to wait until next week to learn more about Christ's power over death. We're gonna save the story of Jairus for next week. For now, though, we want to pay attention to this story within the story. You notice this this nameless woman, who herself is Desperate for a miracle, her story and her faith are profound in their own right. There's a lot we can learn from her story alone. We want to do that now. That being said, there, there's an important contrast here between her story and Jairus's story, and, and so our goal is to fully understand this this unnamed woman's story. But to do that, you need to know a little more about Jairus. So as we get going, I actually want to start us off back in verse 22. And let me tell you, just to begin, a few things about Jairus. Look again at verse 22. Let me reintroduce you to this man. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. We're going to see more next time, but for now, we learn already, this guy Jairus, he was an important guy. He was an, an influential guy. He was literally the local synagogue ruler. It's like the CEO of the, the local synagogue. Understand, Jairus is not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not a priest. He's not a scribe. He's not a rabbi. He is at the local synagogue ruler, which is a position for lay people, just a, a, a rather normal lay person, put in charge of administering synagogue worship, Sabbath day worship. However, such a position was reserved for the wealthy lay person, the powerful lay person, and Jairus was no exception. He's a man of renown. All of the Jews in Capernaum would have known Jairus. would have known him. They would have respected him. He was the main guy in the synagogue. They knew Jairus which makes what happens next a little unexpected because we see him, much like the Gerasene demoniac, run up to Jesus and then just plant his face in the dirt. He just bows down before him and he starts begging. And now, that's a little unexpected for a guy like Jairus. Jesus, he had taught in Jairus' synagogue before. He taught there. He healed in the synagogue he even healed in the synagogue on a sabbath which is why for for among other reasons the pharisees and the religious ruling jews were already plotting to kill him and jairus he must have known about this he must have known how the pharisees who visited his synagogue and heard jesus in his synagogue he must have known how they felt about jesus and he must have known what they were starting to do already to those Jews who came out in support of Jesus. Namely, they were starting to kick people out of the synagogue. The Pharisees were beginning to excommunicate people from synagogue and temple worship. If you supported Jesus, they were rather ruthless, rather cannibalistic. They would turn on you, blacklist you. And especially for a synagogue ruler like Jairus, we see what he's doing here in coming to Jesus it has a, a potential cost this could cost him this could cost him his position in the synagogue as as the ruler going to jesus bowing down before him begging for his help this could cost him but in this moment we see jairus doesn't care he doesn't care he's desperate in a moment of utter despair, he doesn't care if he loses everything. He doesn't care what people will think of him as he's bowing down and begging before Jesus. And and we ask why. What makes him so desperate? And the answer is verse 23. He says, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Are there any, any fathers of daughters in the room? I know there are. And you get this. You understand why this father is so desperate. And I have to say personally. If I preached this passage three years ago, I, I don't think I would have fully understood the desperation of this father. But now with a two-year-old daughter, we, we get it. We understand why he's so desperate. This little girl was dying. She's 12 years old. Luke says, She's also their only daughter. And this is it. In the Greek, the expression means she was nearly dead. This was one of her last breaths. She was on death's doorstep. It was She was going to die today. When? Soon. But she's not going to make it tomorrow. This was it for her. Unless there was some miracle, she was going to die. In fact, we learn later they were already making funeral arrangements. So Jairus knew then, at this, this last moment, she's not getting better. He knew what he had to do. And he knew to whom he had to go. He had to see Jesus. Or rather, he had seen Jesus heal people before, even in his own synagogue. He had saw it. He knew. And he knew now it's, it's time to go beg Jesus for help. And so he goes. We're going to say more about Jairus next week, but for now we see Jesus agrees. He agrees. He doesn't say anything, we don't know what he said, but he agrees and he goes and he walks from the shore to Jairus's house. It's slow moving because the crowd is still there. They're still pressing in. It's like a celebrity working making his way through a crowded arena, just kind of trying to make it through people. It's a, a swarm of humanity. Everyone's trying to press in on them, so movement is slow. And that's where this story temporarily leaves. They're on their way to Jairus's house. And now our attention focuses in on this crowd. There's thousands of nameless faces, and our attention is focused on on one of these nameless faces. En route to Jairus' house, we're introduced to a woman who is just as desperate as Jairus, but for a different reason. We're going to spend the rest of our time reliving her story. And we do that starting in verse 25. Read again, starting in verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Let me stop there for now. Here I have a woman whose name is never given. But her condition is she had this hemorrhage or this, this blood flow problem, bleeding problem. Was this a tumor? Was this menstrual? We don't know. It doesn't say. But whatever it was, it didn't stop. wasn't stopping. And you have to understand this condition absolutely ruined her life. If physically, she was drained. We, you know, blood, it's our life force. Without it, we go down. You're going to lose energy. You're going to be drained away. Just imagine if you had to donate blood once a week, once every couple of days. You'd have nothing left. You'd just be a zombie walking around, always tired, always drained, always weak. That was her. And then spiritually, she was unclean, which is a special category for the Jews, unclean. According to the Torah, a woman after her menstruation was unclean for seven days. And for anyone bleeding or with a disease, you were unclean until it was resolved, ceremonially unclean. So what does that mean for a person who doesn't stop bleeding? It means they are perennially unclean. It's like the leper. You're just, well, you're now forever unclean. You're done. Anyone who touched her would have been unclean. Therefore, everyone would have avoided her like the plague. No one's going to come close to her. Which is why socially... She was an outcast. The temple was closed to women like this. Synagogue, you're kicked out. You cannot step foot in the synagogue. She was cut off from all religious institutions. She was left a spiritual orphan. No one would have wanted to associate with her. If she was married in that age, likely he's already divorced her. She's probably alone, although we don't know for sure. This disease was so devastating that you would do anything you could to get rid of it. You would spend all of your money to find some sort of cure, some sort of remedy, which is what she did. And that's why financially she was bankrupt. She just went from doctor to doctor seeking some remedy, some cure, some treatment, anything, anything. Now the Jews, they had remedies for her condition. The Talmud, which is a a later Jewish document... It presents several prescriptions for women who had bleeding problems like this. They had had some prescriptions. Here's what you can do. Only it's, it's not as clinical as you might want. One remedy is to drink a goblet of wine mixed with Persian onions. Another is to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a special cloth. Just carry it around. And another remedy, it's how some people cure hiccups today have someone come up behind you, scare you, and say, arise from your flux. Not instilling a lot of hope. Obviously, these aren't going to work, but she, she didn't know better. She didn't know. They're doctors, and away her money went. Nothing helped. Mark pa- paints these quack doctors in a pretty negative light. They took all her money, and they gave her no help. She got worse. It's kind of funny, though. Luke... In his gospel, remember, Luke's a doctor. He doesn't mention the bad doctors. He kind of leaves them out. He just says, well, she's incurable. No one can fix her. Physically, she was drained. Spiritually, she was unclean. Socially, she's an outcast. Financially, she was bankrupt. And in the end, her condition was only worse. This is what it looks like to be at the bottom. This is the view from the very bottom. She, she bottomed out. She nothing left. No one left. Desperate. Verse 26 powerfully paints this escalating picture of her desperation with a, a flurry of Greek participles, which just says this, having a blood flow, having suffered for many doctors, having exhausted all her wealth, having not improved, but having gotten worse. That's verse 26. And for 12 years, it was like this. 12 years. Can you imagine that? Okay, maybe a week, but 12 years like this. And so now you you can understand her desperation. You'd, you'd be desperate too if this was you. This desperation finally drives her to Jesus. She's heard the stories. She's heard. By now, hundreds of people have stories of how they were healed by Jesus. She's heard the blind, the deaf, the crippled. It didn't matter. All manner of sicknesses were being instantly cured by Jesus. And most of these stories of his healing involve him healing how? Just by a touch. Just by touching someone. Remember the the leper from Mark chapter 1? How did Jesus heal that leper? By touching him. And that story, if she knew it, must have given her great hope because the only person more unclean than her was a leper. But Jesus touched that leper and cured him instantly, banished his leprosy forever. And surely this is why she gets it in herself to go to Jesus. She's ashamed, though. She's embarrassed. She's humiliated. She's scared. So she wants to do this in secret. Let's just kind of do this undercover, a stealth operation. She doesn't want this to be be made known. And so she reasons. The best thing to do, just, just sneak up on Jesus in the crowd Behind him, and 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 just touch his clothes. That's all I gotta do. Just just touch his outer garment, and sneak away. Jewish men at the time commonly wore tassels to represent their devotion, and so she's reasoning to herself: If I can just just merely tug on one of his little tassels, I'll be healed. And she believes that I, I'll, I will be healed if I can just touch his clothes. That's all she needs. Just barely touch his clothes. She fully believes she will be made well. And then here he is. Here comes Jesus. He's just landed back on the western shore. So she she goes to see him. He gets a little closer and a little closer. Maneuvering her way through the crowd. Probably trying not to touch anybody. But she's got to do it. She's close close enough to see him, close enough to hear him now, and she sees Jairus, and she hears Jairus. And maybe she knows Jairus. Maybe Jairus is the one that kicked her out of the synagogue. But now, here he is. He's on the floor. He's begging Jesus to come heal his daughter, Jairus, or Jesus, presumably says, okay, and they get up, and they start walking to Jairus' house. The crowd is going with them. So she says, this is it. This is my chance. This may be my last chance. I have to, I have to do this crowd is pressing in all around. Everybody's touching Jesus. It's just really pressed in. She maneuvers her way closer and closer and closer. Finally, she's she's right behind him. She's right behind him. And she just reaches out and it ever so slightly just, just tugs on his outer garment, maybe a tassel, just tugs on it. And that's it. She did it. That's it. And what happens? Verse 29, Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. It it worked. It, It actually worked. She was healed, and she knew instantly that she was better. It was unmistakable. If you've ever had an internal injury, you know when something's wrong inside, and you can feel when it's made right, you know right from wrong inside. I've only ever broken one bone in my life, and technically it wasn't really a break. It was just a little shard of my most worthless bone in my body, my left pinky. A little shard broke off while playing football, Thanksgiving morning, 2007, Turkey Bowl. I remember this well. I remember because I was in seminary at the time, and it was right before finals. So it's the worst time for a cast on your hand when you need to be writing. But nonetheless... Didn't really hurt, but I knew like when I flexed my pinky, I could feel this popping inside, and I knew like that, that's not right. That that can't be right. And so I got the cast on, and when I took the cast off, and I flexed my pinky again, I'm like, oh, well, that feels right. I could tell it's been made right. Pretty obvious. And likewise, this woman, she knew, she knew she was healed. She could feel instantly that it had changed. She had been healed. Jesus did for her what no doctor ever could. And he didn't even know her, didn't even know her name, didn't know who she was, didn't know anything about her, but she was healed, at least not yet. And that's what we see in verse 30. He, he wants to know her. Look at verse 30. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, first, you might think Jesus truly had no idea who touched her. And that may be. And you have to remember, in the Incarnation, Jesus willingly set aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. That includes his omniscience. He didn't lose omniscience, but he did willingly set aside his use of it as a man in the incarnation. So he may not have known who touched her. But in this case, he did know his power went forth and he did know somehow that a woman had touched him. The father willed for this woman to be healed through Christ's power. So now Jesus turns and he wants to call her out. For one reason or another, he wants to call her out. And she's not going to sneak away into the crowd that easily. His disciples, though, think he's a little crazy. Like, hey, hey Jesus, there's like a hundred people touching you right now. Why are you asking who touched me? Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? But Jesus knew that someone had touched him in faith and was healed. So his eyes scan the crowd. Verse thirty two, he's looking for the woman who did it. Verse thirty three, she's scared. She is fearing and trembling. And I'll tell you this it's not stage fright. She's not embarrassed. She's not shy. At this point, she's scared of Jesus. At this point, she's fearful of him. Because in that moment, in some level, she realizes it's not just a man. It's not just a rabbi or a teacher. Who can do this? Much like the disciples, when Jesus just let them see a glimpse of his divine power over nature when he stilled the storm, they responded with this, Mark chapter 4, you can look at verse 41. It says, They became very much afraid. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they were scared because they realize there's only one real answer to that question, and it's not a man. And likewise, the woman feared because she recognized at some level she was standing before no mere man. No mere man wields this power. And she knows the jig is up. She can't hide. He's calling her out. She knows he's looking for her. He's talking about her, and she's compelled to respond. She has to confess. She knows she's got to own up to touching him, So she falls down before him. What do you know? Another person falling down at the feet of Jesus. It's kind of like a pattern. And she tells him the whole truth, meaning that the story of her her suffering, her disease, and the healing. You might be thinking, Jesus, why, why call her out? Why call her out? Why are you doing this? I mean, hasn't she suffered enough? Hasn't she been shamed and embarrassed and humiliated enough? Just let her go. Just let her go away anonymously healed, let her enjoy her healing, just just let her go, let her be. Why call her out? Jesus, though, he couldn't let her leave. He could not let her go. He had to call her out in public. And you might ask, well, why? Well, several reasons. One, for her to be publicly cleansed, for her to be seen no longer as unclean but socially clean, this healing had to be made public. This was for her own benefit to be restored into society. But also, she needed to know that she was not healed by a piece of clothing. The garment didn't heal her. And Jesus healed her. And she needed to know that for certain because, remember, she just touched his clothes. But most of all, although he had healed her, she had not confessed him. And she had not glorified him. And he's not going to let her leave like that. This woman displayed a great faith, and through that faith, God healed her physically. But if she would only recognize Christ, confess Him as a person, and cling to Him, she could be healed spiritually as well. And Jesus calls her out because He's not done with her. She had believed in Him with her heart, but now it was time for her to confess Him with her mouth. She had been healed by him physically, but now it's time for her to be healed by him spiritually. Her body was well. Now it's time for her soul to be saved. So Jesus calls her out. Maybe she's expecting a scolding, a rebuke, because she made, technically she made him unclean by touching him. But little does she know, Jesus is a, a kind and compassionate and caring Savior. He's not going to rebuke her. Jesus never rebukes faith. And so he says in verse 34, he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This is the only time ever that we know of anywhere that Jesus calls someone daughter. The only time. And talk about comfort. Talk about assurance. Jesus melts her fears away and reassures her by calling her daughter that she is a child of God. No rebuke was needed because she displayed a, a true, an admirable, a remarkable faith. And through her faith, God healed her, her body, but now her soul, as she fell down before him and, and confessed. And in that moment, she was adopted into a new family. She was a spiritual orphan before. Now she's she's a daughter of God. The highlight here is her faith, which clearly was a saving faith. Notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, "Your, your touch made you well. He doesn't say, my garment made you well. He says, no, but your faith made you well. And further, the phrase made you well. It's actually one word in the Greek. so soken from the word sozo. It's the word used actually everywhere of salvation. It's the word for salvation. And so literally he's saying your faith has saved you. I think used here in a dual sense, her body and her soul. You have been saved. This was a saving faith that made her a, a child of God. And that's why Jesus was able to tell her, go in peace. There's no way Jesus is going to send someone happily on their way to hell and say to them, go in peace. He doesn't say go in peace to those who reject him. No, rather, this is this is the shalom of God, the peace of God. It's that inward peace that comes from reconciliation with, with God. Her bleeding was not going to return. She was physically healed, but more than that, better than that, he spiritually healed her as well. It's like Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings to an end this woman's story. Immediately after this, the focus returns to Jairus and his situation. He was right there the whole time. He's standing right there. He's by Jesus. He hears this. He watches this all unfold. We'll see that next time. But this woman is never mentioned again. She remains a nameless face in the crowd. But her story in Scripture has provided for millions and for centuries a stunning and a powerful model of saving faith. And that's really one of the primary lessons from this text. You are meant to read this and, and learn about, among other things, a faith that saves you. This is the type of faith that saves. And I trust I trust you all know you're saved by faith. You know that, right? You're saved by faith. But, but wait a second, because the Bible mentions and gives examples of some people who they claim to have faith. They said they believed in Jesus. They even called him Lord. But they weren't saved. They were condemned. They ended up in hell. But, but I thought they had faith. We learned there's such a thing as a false faith, a phony faith. And that should, that should shock you a little, make you step back and say, whoa, wait a second, is my faith real or phony? And then how do you tell the difference? What does a true saving faith look like? I almost wish I had some sort of model, some example of a saving faith. Well, Mark chapter 5 is your example. Much like Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, this woman provides an excellent example for us to show us this is the type of faith that saves and pleases God. This is it. You want an example? Here you are. This is what saving faith looks like, and it's one to emulate, to model after. And what makes it so much better is that this woman also serves as a a perfect spiritual illustration. I'm going to call it that, an illustration for all of humanity, for you. Because you're just like her, spiritually speaking, in her condition. Spiritually, you are sick. You're chronically sick. Your spiritual lifeblood is, is draining away. You can spend all the money you want, but there's no fix. There's no human cure for the sin problem. In fact, you're already dead. You're spiritually dead. You have no hope. You are just like her, dead, desperate, at the bottom, with no hope. But here comes Jesus. Along comes Jesus. And you don't, you don't see him. You don't see him, but you, you hear about him. You've heard about him. Much like the woman, you hear that he has the power to change you, the power to transform you, the power to heal you, the power to save you. You hear about it, much like the woman at first. She only heard about it. So the question is what are you going to do next? What are you going to do? You heard about it? He's the answer to your problems. What are you going to do? Saving faith goes doesn't just hear doesn't just intellectually believe but it goes it acts it follows it reaches out it touches it won't let jesus pass by it believes in god's power to transform and then it acts accordingly that is saving faith and this woman displayed it profoundly and then when she laid hold of christ what happened she was healed And likewise, when you embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, when you truly lay hold of him in faith, you believe, you follow, you too are healed spiritually. You are transformed. You're made new. You're born again. You are saved. It's God's power working through Christ, through your faith, will save you. Will save you. I mean, look what great trust... This woman had. It's proven by her actions. Faith involves a real trust. It's an extreme trust and she displayed it and proved it by her actions. Think about this. The greatness of her faith was displayed by the littleness of touch she required. Did you catch that? The greatness of her faith was displayed by the littleness of touch she required to be healed in her mind. She she believed she had heard of Christ's power to save to heal, she believed it, and she believed it so much that she told herself, you know, all I have to do, just just barely touch him, just a little pin prick of a touch, and I'll be healed. I'll be I'll be transformed by that power. Just the smallest of touches, that's that's an amazing faith. That's that's pretty amazing. She was really convinced. She was really convicted and convinced that he can do it, I believe. She didn't see it, she heard, but she knew, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I need to do, just, just the smallest of touches, and I'll be healed. It almost sounds like the biblical definition of faith itself. You know, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It sounds exactly like that. This is saving faith. And you want some some more good news? Is that anyone can have this. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can have this type of faith. The good news we learned from the woman is that God does not show partiality. You, You don't have to be special to have this type of faith. And think about these two stories. Granted, we're going to learn more about the details of Jairus next week. But already, look at the contrast between Jairus and this woman. Jairus has a name. The woman is nameless. Jairus has a position. The woman's a nobody. Jairus has power. The woman is weak. Jairus has money. The woman's broke. Jairus has a family. The woman is alone. Jairus is clean. The woman is unclean. Jairus is the synagogue ruler. The woman can't step foot in the door. Jairus has health. The woman is sick. Jairus approaches Jesus to his faith face. The woman approaches from behind. Jairus approaches in public. The woman in secret. But what a contrast. Humanly speaking, the world would say, well, Jairus, he's the guy. He, he's worth saving. He, he's an upright guy. The world would favor someone like Jairus. If anyone's worthy of, of saving and helping, well, you're going to help Jairus. I mean, he's the guy. He's... He's got it all. Why help this other person? He's so much more valuable. But look, despite all this, despite her gender, despite her namelessness, despite her uncleanness, despite her shame, despite her condition, Jesus still accepted her. And God still saved her. Which just goes to say that none of that matters. It doesn't matter. If you have no money, no position, no fame, no prestige, no health or wealth. it You don't have to have anything because salvation isn't by those things. It's only by one thing. And she had it. And what is it? Faith. That's, that's all you need. In fact, her condition simply meant getting to Jesus was harder. She needed more faith even to get to Him. There were more obstacles, but nothing stopped her from going. And that's a saving faith. There's no obstacles. You're going to go. You're going to commit No matter the hardship, the obstacles, you follow Jesus. That's a saving faith. And so you need to leave all excuses at the door for why God can't accept you. If you think that, oh, God couldn't accept me because I'm such a sinner, so bad, so unworthy. There's no excuse. He can't accept anybody. You realize that? God can't accept anyone. If they stand on their own, on their own two feet, God can't accept you. You're right. But he can accept anyone in Christ. Through Christ, he can accept you, and he does through faith in Christ. You are made acceptable only in Christ. That's how this works, and that's why he is the means of our salvation. And we have to go through the door of faith in him to be transformed. And so, I hope that's your faith. I hope that is your faith in Jesus. That your faith rests in him alone, exclusively, the only one, the only way. Jesus is still the star here. He's still the spotlight of this passage. And let's not miss this. He just healed her fully, completely, instantly transformed her. And so again, you read this passage and we ask, what does this say about who he is? Who can do this? Who can heal like this? Who can banish sickness and disease like this? Who has such control over the world? Who can command arteries and veins to stop bleeding? And they just listen. Only one person can do that. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so you need to believe in Him and follow Him. When you look at this, you see what Jesus did for this woman. You need to realize He can do the same for you, spiritually speaking. You're the same. Just like her, you're desperate. You may not realize it, but you are. You are desperately lost in sin. And just like her, you're hopeless. You have no hope. You may not realize it, but you've got no chance on your own to save yourself, to make yourself right before God. But here comes Jesus. He's he's passing you by right now. Right now, He's passing you by. So what are you going to do? Don't let this moment pass by. There will be a day when it's too late, when he's beyond your reach, when he can't save you anymore. You pass into death, it's too late. And that's why today is always the day of salvation. And that's why you need to lay hold of him in faith. Believe, follow, trust, pursue, be transformed, and then enter into the joy of your master. And you can rejoice. Jesus is the only one who can save you. So turn to Him. I, I know, I know, for most of you, heard that a million times. Heard it a million times. You start to tune it out. Well, let let this let this story and this truth rekindle a fresh affection for you in the Savior, and, and cherish again that the precious truth that He is the only one who can save you. And for those who have followed him, let that foster such a greater love in for him and a discipleship following him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do reflect. We do remember our Savior and what he has done for us. And we, we do. It is true. We've, we've heard it so many times. We hear it all the time. Jesus is the only one who can save you. You're saved by faith what he's done for us. And in, in a way, sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, and we just forget. We don't think about it. It doesn't penetrate our hearts. It doesn't move us. And I pray you, you you scale that all away, Lord, and as we reflect and remember what you did for this woman, how miraculous and and magnificent it was, you can do, and you have done the same for us, even more, totally forgiven, healed, transformed, made new, born again, saved and what a savior what what a gift given to us what a work done for us and that we didn't deserve so i pray we hear these words again we think about these truths again and they do impact our hearts to follow that we see jesus and we're going to follow whatever the obstacles we will follow we will lay hold of him we will pursue him both initially and for the rest of our lives we will be his disciples just following him where he goes living life for him for his glory for your name's sake we commit to that now. I pray for anyone who hasn't. They are convicted. And they too turn to him in faith now before it is too late. And they are transformed. And they understand and what this all means and, and the joy of, of Christ. We do rejoice now. We rejoice in our Savior who gives us a joy because we are made right with you. And so we go in peace. We go now in peace. And we can uh, celebrate all that we have in Christ. In your name we pray. Thank you. Amen.